2005, when today's film came out, I was in college at NYU. I have suffered from depression since my adolescence, and my first attempt at starting college was in 2002. The 9-11 attacks still felt super present in Lower Manhattan when I arrived for freshman year. I wondered if I'd gotten in off the waitlist because some kids had decided against moving to a city that had just been the target of such an unimaginable act of violence. My depression got really bad that first semester, and I immediately fell behind in all of my classes because I was sleeping all day and playing Warcraft 3 all night in my dorm room while my roommate tried to sleep. I realized I was spiraling and started seeing a counselor at the student health center, got my meds adjusted, and negotiated with some of my professors on a plan to get my studies back on track. But when I broached the topic of depression to the TA in my essay writing class, she reported me to the dean who immediately put me on a medical leave of absence. There were half a dozen student suicides at NYU that year and in the next two years, and the administration was trying really hard to make sure that if people were going to commit suicide, it wasn't while they were matriculated at NYU. I was sent back home to California and had to try again the following year. The university never refunded me for that semester, even though I was only there for a little more than a month. I came back and the trauma of 9-11 was still everywhere, and it remained present in life the entire time I was in school. Classes always started in early September, and our professors, most of whom lived in Lower Manhattan, all had intense personal stories to share each anniversary. During my leave of absence, the Bush White House had used 9-11 as a pretext to invade Iraq. And by 2005, the folly of that was basically impossible to ignore. It had been a nakedly imperialist effort to secure access to oil reserves for the United States, dressed in the sheerest of war-on-terror clothing. Today's film made a big impression on me when it came out because it felt like it engaged with the geopolitics of what was happening in the world without collapsing the forces at play into simplistic good guys and bad guys. I also totally didn't understand 90% of what I was seeing, which felt like nice verisimilitude to a world in which politics had stopped making sense to me, a college kid in a blue bubble who had grown up in an indigo bubble. I'm not even going to try and summarize the story of today's film. I would get things wrong and this intro would be longer than the episode I'm trying to set up, but needless to say, the four story threads are about various people prosecuting and experiencing the global geopolitics of oil, wealth, and power. Director Stephen Gagan's prior film, Traffic, polemicized the drug trade and the way our culture deals with addiction. And in this film, he attempts to do something similar as he engages with who is rich and powerful in the world of fossil fuels and what made them that way. What the film does better than any film I've seen is draw lines between the pain felt by people like my professors and older classmates who had lived through 9-11 happening while school was in session, and the foreign policies that had engendered it, and the foreign policies that we'd decided to pursue as a reaction to it. We were still asking ourselves why the terrorists hate us in 2005, and there were a lot of people in my life for whom that felt like a very personal question. The film doesn't insult your intelligence about what makes the world the way it is, and I think it really holds up as an important accounting of where we were at in 2005 when it came out. 
It couldn't have possibly predicted where things would proceed from there, but in looking back, I think it helps me to understand why things proceeded the way they did. Americans love to drill holes in other people's countries. Today on Friendly Fire, Syriana. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that is fourth on the list of torture techniques used by the Chinese against the Falun Gong. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. It's not quite as bad as having your fingernails pulled out with pliers. That would be pretty bad, but there are lots of things that would be worse than having your fingernails pulled out. Yeah, like Water Dungeon. Water Dungeon, anything. I wanted to know more about Water Dungeon. Like I wanted to see, I wanted to see the phases of torture. Like I wanted to see in montage form what George Clooney had gone through before, <laughs> during, and after this. My wife watched this movie with me, and when the torture scene started, she just left the room and didn't come back for like half an hour. <laughs> you know what scene we didn't get was Bob Barnes on the flight back to Walter Reed with his fingers just pounding from the atmosphere. Yeah. Oh, man. Just like power drinking whiskey in first class on his way back home. Like, that had to be the worst flight ever, right? Uh, Sir, the flight will go faster if you try and sleep. (laughs) I can never sleep on an airplane after I've been tortured. What's crazy is that Hezbollah came in and stopped the torture, but then didn't, like, help. Nobody put a, gave him any Band-Aids. Like, he passed out on the floor and he woke up a, an hour later on a blood-soaked floor. It was like, hey, Hezbollah, like, you got, you surely have some Band-Aids. <laughs> you guys have, like, a, a car. You could maybe, like, drive this guy to a, you don't even have to go in with him, but just take him to a hospital. I felt like Masawi should have gotten a slap, at least. Yeah. Who knows what happens to yeah, that guy? You're right. Yeah, maybe he get maybe he gets a reprimand. Maybe Hezbollah like sends Bob some fingernails in the mail. <laughs> just like, hey, I heard you were missing some fingernails. We happened to come ac- come across right. some. We found these. Yeah. <laughs> Barnes should have known, right, on the pier when he has that meeting, and Masawi's like, "I'm Masawi now. Stop calling me that other name, right. Jerry or whatever. I- I'm not Gerald anymore." <laughs> I thought that was interesting because they always talk about him as Masawi when they're, you know, when he's not in the room, right? Like when Bob is making the plan with the CIA people back in Langley, they're not, uh, they're not calling him Jerry. They're calling him Masawi. They're like, make contact with Masawi. The character of, of Bob Barnes is really interesting. He's so, he's so down low. He's like so underplayed but you really got the feeling that he was throwing mad shade on Masawi. You know, in the rest of the movie, not really a teaser. He's not a big teaser. No. (laughs) He's not doing bits. They cut the storyline where he walked into a room that Muhammad Ali was sitting in and called him Cassius. Hmm. We're so sorry for your loss. There's an entire fifth subplot that was shot for this film and cut. That's what this movie needed. It needed a fifth subplot. 
Right. It was Michelle Monaghan playing like a Texas uh, pageant queen falling in love with a, a an oil baron from the Middle East. Hmm. You hear all about a, a person's performance being cut for time, but like the idea of showing up day after day, shooting yeah. scene after scene, having an entire storyline get cut is is tragic. I feel awful for her. I know. She was she was early in her career then too. You have to wonder all the plots that kind of loosely tie together, they all seem like plots that you could expand outward to encompass, you know, like geopolitical level of truthiness. And maybe a subplot involving a Texas beauty queen that falls in love with a Middle Eastern oil baron was the one that didn't translate to the sort of general, like generality. Maybe it was too sexy, maybe. Mm. There's not a lot of sex in this movie. It's a pretty sexless movie. Did you know that uh, Bob was originally supposed to be played by Harrison Ford? That was the first actor they approached with the role. This isn't the kind of role that Harrison Ford plays, though. Yeah, he expressed regret about about turning it down, though. I bet he did. It won Clooney an Oscar. It would have been like the moment in his career to take that part, right? Like, okay, now I'm not Jack Ryan. I'm like a much more flawed CIA officer who has made mistakes and is like letting the scales fall from my eyes. Like I am no longer a boy scout. Like that would have been an amazing uh, turn for him. I wonder if publicly he stated a, a difficulty, you know, grasping the Bob Barnesness of this yeah. as his reason. But the reality was maybe he didn't want to eat 20 pancakes a day for six weeks because <laughs> you never see Harrison Ford change his body for a role. Right. And that would have been yeah. required for something like this. And that's, I think one of the things that make George Clooney's performance great is he kind of coplands himself a little bit. He's still like, he's still Clooney beautiful, but there's something uh, like the bedraggledness about him, the paunchiness of him, Right. He's not a good guy in a movie that is almost completely devoid of good guys, but there's something about his physicality that makes you root for him. The thing about Clooney is that he relies so heavily on charm and dimples and, you know, bright <laughs> eyes in every movie he's in. And he succeeds, you know, like he, he convinces you that he's a diamond thief or, a, you know, whatever he is in his movies. But in this movie, all he had to do was, I don't even think it's the weight as much as it is, he just turned off the charm. He's completely charmless in this movie. And I don't know if I've ever seen an actor that that had the ability to turn off their charm. Because Robert Redford, no matter how, yeah. uh, no matter how many, uh, you know, prosthetic noses you put on him, he's always Robert Redford. And the thing is that Harrison Ford's charm is already... Uh, gritted teeth and, uh, you know, look of quiet desperation. You would always notice Harrison Ford getting onto the elevator in the wrong way. Right. But but Bob Barnes in this movie looks like every Canadian you've ever seen in a hotel restaurant eating by himself. Like, <laughs> he's, he's anonymous that way perfectly. And every time somebody d addresses him directly and he kind of just goes mm, and shrugs, <laughs> like, he really does just fade into the wallpaper. 
It's like he's replaced his the charming piercingness in his eyes with that longing and desperation. He looks like he's really at his wit's end in every scene. Like he's built this career that is kind of grinding to a halt and his family is is completely fucked up because of it and nothing nothing is going right. So every play is potentially the one that tips him over into ca- catastrophe in this movie. I really like the role for Clooney. Yeah, uh, the the uh, the scene with his son in the cafe where it's it becomes apparent that both Clooney and his wife are spooks and they've raised their kid telling him that they're not is such a devastating scene because this kid's like in college now or whatever on his way to college and he's just like what does mom do again you know like the kid knows and yet they've never copped to it they've never sat him down and said okay look you know the deal and like we love you like can you imagine being a kid that grows up where your parents are just like every day we're just lying to you about i mean look we've all we've all grown up in that household those of us that were born in the 60s but usually our parents were lying (laughs) about their alcohol consumption or their affair not about what they did for a living yeah i just want normal senior year dad it reminded me a little bit of like early sopranos seasons where tony sopranos kids start to put together what their you know that their dad is not just a waste management consultant hmm it's on like a totally different scale for for Bob's kid because he's he lives in like Beirut most of the time, it right. sounds like. Mom and dad just work at the embassy and he goes to some embassy school. There's a subtle moment in that scene where where his kid borrows the hot sauce from the table next door and you get a moment where the girls notice him and they like what they see and then that flash I think you're made to understand all the possibilities for a kid like that. All of the fun that that would seem to be had for him were his dad to make some different decisions. A really intense choice to have a kid in a marriage that is to <laughs> undercover CIA <laughs> agents. His character is based on Bob Bayer, right? Who Who wrote the book that the screenplay is based on? That's right. Did you read about the pre-production of this film and that uh, Stephen Gagan like hung out with Bear a lot, like for months and months, and he got a crazy deal from the studio. He got a blank check to do research. So for months and months, they hung out, and Stephen Gagan was this guy's shadow and got to understand how he worked and what his values were and his many uh, guilty feelings. Uh, really amazing opportunity. Yeah, I read that Stephen Gagan was in fact in Beirut and had like a sack put over his head and went and met with a Hezbollah guy. Stephen Gagan has lived a remarkable life. He's not that much older than me. He's 55 and he won an Oscar for the screenplay for Traffic He was a drug addict and a junkie and got sober. And then he made this movie. And if you look at him, he's just, he's also like 
handsome and I really hate him. I hate everything about him. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you uh, you can take comfort in the fact that his most recent film is Doolittle, one of the most universally panned films of 2020. I wanted to interrogate that for a second because I feel like you get from traffic to Syriana and then you're like, is Syriana the heat check or is gold the heat check? What got him into director prison? Because I don't understand how the man who made traffic and Syriana could be given Doolittle. I, I don't understand it one bit. Well, Doolittle had a $175 million budget. They bet big on that movie. They were not hiring somebody that was in director jail. He may be in now. He made but. Syriana in 2005, and his next movie, Gold, wasn't made for 11 years. What was he doing what happened? between 2005 and 2011? He had directed one episode of... Oh, no. He appeared in an episode of Entourage. Didn't even direct it. <laughs> Maybe he was like traveling around with various spies doing doing research. I guess so. Maybe he spent too much money on his research. You get a blank check once, and you you see some of the some of the line items on there. The story of the way that he did research for this movie is the kind of thing that it's just like wow. I didn't realize you could do that if you were a director, like. Have the instead of spending your budget on lame special effects where you blow up Porsches to say like no I'm going to spend my pre-production budget actually like meeting Hezbollah and and learning to speak Farsi and all this stuff I was like what kind of an asshole are you I I really want you to have a a, a scarring injury not not something terrible but just like <laughs> something that like a scar that runs across the bridge of your nose or something. You're too pretty. This is animosity that you usually only reserve for the the kid from Roseanne. Yeah, he looks like yeah, the drummer of the yeah. Foo Fighters. I mean, I just want him to be punished. <laughs> Maybe his marriage isn't going that great, or I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I've never heard you this jealous of someone. I don't want to wish ill on a guy, but you know, come on, God. He's like, I'm a, I'm a film director. I'm gonna also be, a, I'm also gonna go to spy school. And everybody's like, okay, great, go to spy school. We'll pay for it. Here's all the money you will need for yeah. that. Yeah. But Robert Bear speaks Arabic, Persian, French, Russian, Tajik, and Baluch. Like this guy's a super spy. Why would why would he not why would he not be a CIA lifer? Why wouldn't they make him director of of you know like operations or something how do you let a guy like that retire let that missile fall into the wrong hands yeah. he fucked up yeah kept writing memos about yeah. it <laughs> maybe you should have saved this movie for our secret other podcast project yeah well i thought about that i thought that this this definitely there's so much overlap one thing that Stephen gagan talked about uh, in why he wanted to make this movie was that he started to think about the way the United States relationship with oil works as being very similar to the way addiction works and that's something that struck him as he was working on 
making traffic. That's exactly the kind of bullshit thing you say in a press conference that makes people think you're smart and they send you to spy school. <laughs> Fuck that guy. I saw a lot of parallels between the oil business and the drug business, and so I wanted to make a $100 million film. Fuck you. Well, well I bring it up because I kind of disagree. Like, I think that like this film is much more about, like, like skewering the the worldview of the neocons you know mm -hmm. like showing how fucking chaotic they have made everything and and that doesn't feel like addiction so much as like as like a i mean it's like a, a criticism of an ideology really like they talk about they're very casual about oil in this film like you know this like this is a good investment unless we stop using oil to power cars and <laughs> that is left as just like a totally like legitimate path that could be taken but instead it's this like crazy violence and and intrigue and like you know private wealthy citizens using the cia to get things done in foreign countries so that they could profit off the you know ascension of a of an emir that they've selected i remember watching this in 2005 so still in the hangover of 9-11. And when it came out, it very much felt like a 9-11 movie. Um, and it was, you know, when 9-11 happened, before the Bush administration began their endless war, there was that, that pregnant couple of months where, and, and this was before the country was so, like, ridiculously divided, where, you know, it was very difficult for the pundit class to explicitly say, you know, 9-11 is the product of a, like, overarching foreign policy direct at, toward the Middle East that has, re you know, basically resulted in this. And it was, it was diabolical, and there's, no one's making the case that we deserved it or that it was... Um, but we could have been building a world that had like stability and right. and not people that wanted to fly airplanes into buildings. Yeah, like, the the case was just like this isn't a military thing. This isn't a war. No one started a war here. This was, you know, uh, this is a thing that needs to be dealt with at all levels as as a kind of reordering of the way that we approach foreign policy. And, you know, and then the war started and it was like, oh, I guess it's a war. And I guess all those uh, all those think pieces we wrote about what we should be doing are right out the window. But this movie felt like it was coming from the viewpoint of a lot of those editorials, a lot of those tentative editorials of the winter of 2001, 2002, where people were like, shouldn't we look at this? Doesn't this seem a little bit more complex than just that we bomb Saddam Hussein? Isn't there like more to it? And when this movie came out, I remember sitting in the theater and just being really inspired by the idea that this asshole surfer bro fucking screenwriter super spy guy <laughs> managed to make a movie that, that had this many subplots that did all, I mean, I think you need to watch this movie a couple of times to get, 
everything yeah. because the way the film's made, a lot of stuff is set into people's, uh, you know, into their shirt pockets. Like there's a lot going on in the sound design information's coming in over the radio that you think maybe is just white noise. But when you watch it a second time, you're like, Whoa, that's part of the plot. Like, how did I, how are they letting that just float by? Yeah. Tim Blake Nelson's testifying before Congress about how money is speech is like on TV in the background several times. And he's basically saying the, the quiet part out loud in that moment, but it's in the foreground is like the, Jeffrey Wright character dealing with his drunk dad. He gets another at bat with those feelings, though, by by screaming them in his corruption is why we win speech. You know, like if you miss it the first time, you do pick it up later on. You know, watching it now, 15 years later, that's hard to imagine. But I think we all feel like the interconnectedness of all these subplots. This is just part of a common sense understanding of what the geopolitical situation is. But at the at the time this movie came out, I think these different ideas, the idea of corporate corruption, the idea of of intelligence community corruption, the idea of Middle Eastern oil emir ship corruption, like and then the idea that that of Islamic extremism, we we still thought of those as siloed somewhat and not as part of a whole fabric. I don't think it was conventional way of looking at those particular universes as being so one kiss away from one another. This movie felt innovative then. It's hard, I think, hard to cast ourselves from now back to 2005 to, to see how, you know, this is a sympathetic portrayal of Islamic extremism. One of this film's great powers, though, I think might be in its timelessness, though. Like, I really didn't watch this through the lens of its proximity to 9-11. I felt it deeply in it, in its resonance with the things happening today. Mm-hmm. This film could have come out in 2015, I thought, and have been just as relevant. I felt like I understood it in a whole new way watching it this time because... I remember really liking it and finding it very compelling, you know, in the theater when it came out. And I've definitely seen it on video a few times, but watching it in 2020, I was like understanding a whole new, a whole new aspect of it. I think that I I really underestimated how much this movie is talking about how wealthy and powerful Americans are able to pull the the strings of the world like the like the Christopher Plummer character is low-key the scariest guy in the movie despite the fact that this is a movie full of torturous terrorists you know Christopher Plummer's character is is so great and you see in every interaction in the way that he talks to Jeffrey Wright when he first meets him but then when he meets them again in the restaurant and he refu- he doesn't shake his hand. The, the way he just addresses everyone with this like incredible haughtiness. But then that scene where he's in that meeting with the young, the the young prince. Americans always happy to drill holes in other people's countries. He's out of place. And he kind of sits there, sits on his hands for the first half of the scene. And then he starts to respond to the because the prince kind of insults him. He starts to respond. And when he gets to that line where he says, 
I know your father. He threw the second creepiest party I've ever been to in Washington, D.C. <laughs> when he turns on that line, like the hair goes up on the back of your neck like, holy shit, this man answers to no one. Like if you're on a boat owned by, you know, one of the heirs to a <laughs> a royal family in the Middle East out somewhere, presumably in the Mediterranean, like there's really nothing stopping them from killing you and dumping you overboard you know the fun part of that scene is when they cut back to amir and mir is like yeah like he sort of shrugs like that's true it's a fucked up party (laughs) i'm not proud of my actions there well and then christopher Plummer is like you're the second son like you don't get anything and you're dragging me for being the cat's paw of the saudis you don't you don't even have a cat's paw well and and what he's basically saying is you know you are my puppet i i can make you a king I can make you a king even if your father doesn't want it. I can make you a king even though your brother is already like known throughout the world as the heir apparent. None of that matters to me. I can make you a king. Are you a king? Like that was, I just was like, oh, wow. What a, first of all, what a role. But second of all, like the whole movie turns on that on that moment. I feel like Harrison Ford reads that part of the script and that's why he wants to be Bob Barnes. Not for anything Bob (laughs) Barnes does, but because he's in a movie where Christopher Plummer does that scene. Yeah. He raises his voice and just raises it just enough where you were like, I sat down in my chair. I was like, yes, sir. I'm, I'm, you know, that's 15 years later and I'm sitting in my own basement, but I was like, whatever you say, I don't think I, I don't think I'm ready to be the Amir. (laughs) I pop my head out of the closet and go, actually, royalty is a social construct. <laughs> and then they like wrap me in a carpet and dump me over the side of the boat. <laughs> as far as Dean Whiting's concerned. Yeah. And that like thing that is terrifying about him is that he is unafraid of upending the the natural order of things in a way that feels like, you know, in, in other hands, it would feel like an exciting way of of looking at the world like oh like we can make the world anything we want it to be but he exclusively makes the world something that accrues wealth and power around himself right and it's the thing that made the scene between Clooney and him the one moment I thought that the film kind of faltered because Clooney this like this schlub that has been completely outplayed within the CIA, like his the guys that basically shared an office with him just threw him under the bus. But somehow he's able to get into Dean Whiting's house in the middle of the night and then get Dean Whiting to meet him in a in a, a roadside diner and then threaten him and his life. Like Dean Whiting is a guy that you don't threaten. I feel like the Al Sabais would have already done so were it possible. Were it possible, yeah. Like like does Dean Whiting really fear that George Clooney is going to kill his wife and kids? Like Dean Whiting could snap his fingers and and, and Bob Barnes is gone from the world and no one would miss him. It's definitely a movie that makes you realize that government regulation of corporations and the attorney general's office are really necessary, not things that you want to eliminate <laughs> yeah. in terms uh, trying to make the post office more efficient. You you really need 
you really need the government because without the government, the world is run by Dean Whiting and Dean Whiting doesn't care about you or me. Right. And, and like, like what separates Dean Whiting from just being a international super criminal? It's, it's the way he thinks of himself almost more than anything else. And I think a lot of the guys from this era, the, the super capitalists, at least until recently, yeah. they thought of themselves as extensions of American policy and they thought of themselves as liberators of the oppressed and of people bringing democracy and freedom to the world. Yeah, at least Elon Musk knows he's a Bond villain, right? Well, and I think that's when Adam said if this movie had come out in 2015, he would have believed it. And and at, when he first said it, I was like, well, what about now? But of course, after Trump, uh, right. this isn't believable because there's still a real sense both of like an operative global system that there is such a thing as an American patriot who isn't living in a in a cauldron of lies, <laughs> you know, that, that, that there are things, uh, there's a lot in this movie that where you get the feeling that the people involved are like, this isn't politics. This is above politics. You know, right. like things are happening that, that, or, or rather it's above partisanship. These are just things that happen at a global level between nations. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's a, person with a d or an r next to their name in the white house we always do this type of shit because this is the u.s and i feel like that has dissolved so much in the last four years that a movie like this now would seem an anachronistic there's not enough bumblefuckers at the top to be believable if this were to come out today like like who's the who's the mouth breathing idiot at the top of the pyramid I mean, I did kind of get the feeling that the Tom McCarthy character felt a little bit like that, like like a kind of Bush administration-y stooge who's like, well, I'm not sure if the Amir got back in the fourth car or if he was one of the dots that went back and got in the sixth car, but we're just going to drone the fourth car because there's some guys from the White House standing behind me and I want to demonstrate to them that I have, you know, the grit that it takes to to call a hit like this. Yeah, but he was, but he's he's clearly like a bit dude, a, a bit player that. Just imagine though, how many bit dudes there are with that kind of power. I know. I know. So, whatever role David Clennon was playing, Donald Farish the Third is some kind of U.S. attorney. Is that right? U.S. attorney or some some other kind of DOJ. He, he's the person that uh, I guess represents the functioning government the most. And his conversation with Jeffrey Wright in the back of the limo where he's like, look, people need to go down before we're going to approve this merger just as a matter of, of just so that we look like we've done due diligence. And Jeffrey Wright is like, oh, well, you know, we'll give you uh, we'll give you the dude that nobody likes. You know, we'll give you Danny Dalton and and he's like, nah, that's not enough. It just, that's the thing that feels very Bush administration in terms of, and probably Clinton administration. And I mean, that's just like the way that justice gets done. It's like, yeah, somebody's got to go down. It's never going to be Dean Whiting. Things would have to go really sideways in this world for Dean Whiting to lose. But, uh, you know, but Sidney Hewitt, yeah, 
Cindy Hewitt can go down. Dean Whiting can't because he's got a golf date with exactly. the president uh, next week, and we don't want to <laughs> mess up their and calendar. And Sidney Hewitt's one of those guys that thinks about himself that he's too big to fail. And then you, he realizes in that scene that, nope, you're exactly the level that that we'll take and and send to prison. But that that's the thing that feels like it's missing today because the character the department of justice person in a movie set in today's world would be like the heir to the Oscar Mayer Wiener fortune who got appointed <laughs> to be assistant uh, attorney general. He used to host like a right wing talk radio <laughs> yeah. show. And now he does this. He's the guy that took all the toilet paper out of the men's rooms at the Smithsonian as a cost saving measure. <laughs> now they're stuck with Scott. The worst toilet paper ever made. One of the things about actors, the great actors, that we appreciate most is is the willingness to give up their vanity. And there are a couple of ways that that happens, right? There's there's the the snot drool. We've talked about <laughs> that quite a bit on Friendly Fire. There's yeah. there's the uh, quite evident weight gain here by George Clooney, but there's something else that I wanted to talk about that that struck me heavily was the scene where Bob Barnes is waiting for his plan to go into motion. And when the kidnappers get the jump on him in the hotel room, yeah, what he does with his body and his voice, it feels like there's a totally different sound to a person who is really literally screaming for their lives and someone who is acting like they are did you guys were you guys struck by this scene too like Clooney leaves it all out on that hotel room floor and you can tell by the register of his scream that he knows just how dangerous of a situation he's on his way to like if if no one can hear him from that hotel room it's fingernails time and he knows that and that's why he sounds the way he does. His fear feels super genuine in that moment. And and I agree. I, I think um, Matt Damon deserves some credit for taking a role that makes him look like a dickless asshole also. Like, he's yeah. definitely a bad person in this movie. A guy who, like, is so caught up in his kind of international businessman lifestyle that he is willing to look past the untimely death of his six-year-old to get a lucrative contract for his oil futures trading company. That scene that he has with Alexander Siddig in the desert was another one of those scenes, John, like how you were describing the uh, Christopher Plummer scene, where they're just trading verbal haymakers. And I mean, unfortunately, nothing wins against the reality of paying tens of millions of dollars against the death of someone's kid. Yeah. There's no coming back from that. Well, except if you have tens of million dollars you can spend. I mean, when he throws that back, right. like, and I'll pay a hundred million for your other kid, that punch lands because it's like, <laughs> he does have a hundred million. He just, you know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> How many kids you got, Matt Damon? Yeah. What, will you kill your other kid for a hundred million? How much for the wife? Yeah, why not? Why not? Let's just <laughs> go there. I feel like Matt Damon's character is another person in this movie that after he gets into that relationship and becomes kind of the uh, the wingman to Prince Nazir, 
he begins to think that he's the guy that has the plan. He's the indispensable uh, smart strategist and consigliere. But the problem is Prince Nazir throughout the entire film keeps making it expressly clear to uh, Brian Woodman, Matt Damon's character, that he went to freaking Oxford and he knows everything Mm -hmm. that Matt Damon's telling him. He knows it already. He doesn't need an advisor. He doesn't need a friend. Matt Damon gets in there and really you can just see it in the way he talks and the way he is operating that he thinks he's too big to fail or that he's close enough to the center of power that he can't lose. When you put it that way, why is he there? Unclear. I mean, I I feel like Prince Nazir is using him in some way that we would have discovered we would have discovered after he was appointed emir, after he became emir, uh, and like whatever revolutionary emir he thought he was going to be, that you would find Matt Damon in the lobby holding his suitcase pretty fast, I imagine. That's maybe the only aspect of this story that feels especially hand of screenwritery. Like as you as you develop the characters then and move them around the map, you've got to put matt damon's character somewhere you got to pair him up with someone and that feels like a convenient pairing versus a motivated pairing i kind of felt like there is still some righteous anger in the american movie going public in 2005 that wants to see a white guy yell at an Hmm. arabian guy like about how their economy is based on a stroke of geological luck and and that like everything they have is going away eventually that's a scene you can build a movie preview around in 2005 well and even even now i mean there's this there's the segment of what you just pointed out ben is a hat tip to the middle brow moviegoer because the populist red meat speech is an American guy screaming at uh, an Arab guy, you know, about oil or about how we're going to come and straighten you all out or whatever, something that's that's a lot baser. That argument, the, right. the like the colonialist argument that the Arab monarchies have squandered their opportunity to build real civilizations is that neocon argument that really flattered a certain kind of moviegoer and still does flatters the college educated, um, flatters the person that, you know, that played risk in college. And what's interesting is, is that, that Prince Nazir throws that speech back in his face a couple of times, which I guess flatters the neoliberal film goer who wants to see the neocon get kicked in the dick. And also, like, when you walk out and you go like, wow, I wish Prince Nazir had ascended to the throne so that he could give women the right to vote and have an independent judiciary in their country. That's that's what we mm-hmm. really want, which is it's still kind of an imperialist attitude. Like, why don't why don't they act more like us? You know, you get it for both sides. Well, and also in terms of the West and our expectations of the Middle East, we put a lot of chips down on the side of Bashar Assad. Uh, in the sense that he was, you know, he was a classic Prince Nazir, right? He was educated in the West. He was a 
what, an ophthalmologist? And and we just assumed like, well, an ophthalmologist can't be a ruthless dictator that gases his own people. Right. He just like has you into the <laughs> office. He charges your insurance company. He's like yeah. pretty, you know, you might see him at the golf resort on the weekend. Gonna tell you, uh, hey, listen, just between you and me, you might want to try a little marijuana for that glaucoma. <laughs> uh, so, so the idea that, yeah, that there is a, um, there, that there is some vein of progressivism in the younger generation of Arab royal families is one we've been hanging our hat on for decades. It's the other side of the same coin of the wishful thinking of the people in the Liberate Iran Club that we see a couple of times in this film. The, you know, like, oh, Iran is basically the U.S., but with mullahs. And if uh, if they would just go away, we, we would have a, you know, a representative republic in the Middle East that we could be friends with. Right. If we just tear down the Saddam statues. The film speaks out of both sides of its mouth, though, because on the one hand, it's saying, like, if, if only we can meddle enough, we can make them into a thing that would be a shining light and an example of, of a good project for us. But on the other side, like, the meddling is so destructive, and in the end, the killing of, of Nasir is an example of, of that hope being drained away in favor of the profitable chaos that that concentrates the wealth toward people like Christopher Plummer's character. Oh, well, they they want a compliant Middle East. That's why, I mean, they want to pick the emir. They just want the emir that wants to do business. And in that sense, they want the emir that didn't go to Oxford. They want the emir's younger brother. Smart people at the top are a real threat for uh, greedy assholes. Yeah, because what, you know, what <laughs> Nazir is going to do is sell his... You know, he we, we hear him lay out his plan a couple of different times. He's going to sell his oil to China, and because that they're the highest bidder, and he's going to use the money to build an infrastructure for his people. Now, whether or not, I mean, that's talk about the hand of the screenwriter. Um, that feels like Stephen Gaggins' goddamn surfer bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> you just know Stephen Gagan went out there and went falconing for like did. a week just to see what that was like. He did. That seems cool. He was like, I'm going to live in this tent and eat figs. Fuck you. You know who I bet is an awesome hang? Stephen Gagan. Yeah. I, God, I, I bet that guy rules oh. so hard. Can you imagine going falconing with Stephen Gagan and he's like down with all the guys at the falconing place because oh. he's been there 20 times? Oh, man. You know, he's got the coolest falconing glove. Oh, yeah. You know what Stephen yeah. Gagan does? He gets up at six in the morning and goes for a run. That's what he does. That's who he is. He's probably on a run right now. <laughs> you see him jogging on Thanksgiving and you're like, come on, Stephen Gagan. What are you trying to prove? Come on. Fuck you, Stephen Gagan. <laughs> we should make that our $500 merch item. The, the Friendly Fire Falcon and Glove signed oh, by yeah. Stephen Gagan. <laughs> it's a scrap of the coronation carpet that the queen of england was crowned on or something <laughs> that's that's what stephen gagan's rocking that rocks it hard lawyers are saying hey if you can't trust a big five accounting firm and the accountants are saying hey we're not lawyers i feel like the jeffrey wright performance although he he plays this kind of character sometimes but he is so tightly wound but but in a way that feels there's it's foreshadowed when Dean Whiting says, I have a lot of sheep working for me that think they're lions. Are you a lion that 
looks like a sheep. And then Jeffrey Wright goes, do you mean wolf? Because like, usually it's like a wolf and sheeps. <laughs> but he doesn't really give anything away on his face. Like the camera pans to him and zooms in on that moment. Yeah. They cut out the Miss America storyline and they also cut out the, the explanation that Jeffrey Wright has. <laughs> Which was like its own storyline, really. They kept returning to it. Yeah, I like the moment in the uh, in the merger boardroom when they're like, over the next 30 days, we're going to be getting some DOJ, uh, you know, scrutiny about this merger. And it's like, it's Chris Cooper and, and all the like business company creeps who are like like high power southern businessmen who are used to this kind of like bombastic work culture and jeffrey wright as a contrast to that in that scene the only black guy in the room who stands up and just kind of like nervously like waves high to them instead of saying anything i thought was amazing <laughs> well and he's the, he's the the type of guy that everybody else in that room when they get up to talk the first thing they do is make a joke like oh it was right. a long long flight in and my wings are tired and uh and he's the <laughs> one guy in the room that has never made a joke once in his life <laughs> but that's an incredible role and the subplot of him with his dad you know it humanizes him in a way like matt damon is doing a really bad job with his wife george clooney is doing a really bad job with his kids um, you know, the, the personal lives of all these people, when we see glimpses of it, it's always bad, except for Chris Cooper is just always cooking ribs for his kids. They love him. You know, if I, if I had only invested in the Tengiz oil <laughs> range when I was in my twenties, I think I'd be a much happier person now. You'd have a chance of winning oil man of the year. Chris, Chris Cooper's speech was like, my granddaddy was in oil and my dad was too and they both had they both were oil wildcatters but nobody handed me anything i'm a i'm right. a billionaire oil wildcatter but i made it from the ground up i was like uh-huh i love that so much <laughs> the blind spot of nepotism yeah nobody handed me anything just all this oil <laughs> i'm the one that put it in barrels Ugh. but that subplot of his alcoholic dad other without it that character of jeffrey wright would have had no there's no route in and the only th the only route in was to watch him kind of abuse his alcoholic dad which was i think when i saw the movie the first time that also felt like pretty meaningful and not you know not careful like that's kind of a broad it's a broad stroke but it's it's swinging for the fence and uh, ending the movie on him being nice to his dad after having basically like owned the world. It was a little bit pat, but you really did kind of want to see a movie about those two, right? Like I'd watch a, I'd watch a movie about them. John, I didn't really see the meaning of it. And I'm, and by saying that I'm saying I didn't like it any less. I liked that the film made room for all of these relationships and, and, we were allowed to know their many failures in a really intimate way, but I didn't see the instrumentality of a drunk father on Jeffrey Wright's character's life. Like he, I don't think he was motivated in 
in earning his love, I think he knew very deeply that what he was doing was something that would disappoint him. Oh, no, I thought it was uh, far from earning his love. I thought that it was it was because his dad, whenever his dad drunkenly turned up on his porch, he's always in a suit, right? Like his dad is a failure, but the suit implies that his dad was not he's not a working class guy. He's somebody that had a professional career and either gets up in the morning and puts on that suit because it's the one thing that holds him together or he's wearing that suit because he's continuing to work in sort of administrative jobs. He's not a bartender. Yeah, that was the only plot line in this film that I didn't quite understand. I understood the rest of it perfectly. I think it's because you have such a good relationship with your... That was supposed to be funny. <laughs> I was going to explain your own joke to you, Adam. It's because your relationship oh, with your dad is so good that you wouldn't you wouldn't understand it. Wow. John Roderick, Twitter <laughs> reply guy. You fucking film papered me. <laughs> One of the three hosts of Friendly Fire. That's not supposed to happen. Wow. <laughs> What's fucked up is that your paper is coming out of my printer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's coming from inside the house, Adam. Your house. <laughs> Let's talk before we go a little bit about the Wasim storyline. Yeah. Because I think that that's one part of this film that we haven't talked much about. And I guess it's the storyline that feels the least interactive with the others. You know, Wasim never encounters a person who wants to talk to him about anything but, you know, Sharia, aside from his father, right? Like the, he, he, he gets kind of caught up in this Wahhabist Islamic school mostly because it seems like it can prevent him from being deported back to Pakistan. I mean like the 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 country they're in is like fictional, right? It's 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 sort of a sort of a like an avatar of like Qatar or the United Arab Emirates or Saudi Arabia ultimately, but yeah. Or one of yeah, one of several countries in that region. The one goof that I found that was kind of interesting was that near the end of the film, a sign for Dubai International Airport in black writing on a white background is partially visible on a walkway from the terminal to a waiting plane. And I guess that's, you know, indicative of a mistake because the filmmaker wanted to be very careful about not pointing a finger directly at one specific country. Mm-hmm. But... um I agree with you, John, that it is a very sympathetic portrayal of somebody who finds himself radicalized. Like, Wasim is not an idiot. He's a very, like, relatable young guy who... I still watch this and wonder how he gets there and what is said wordlessly between him and his friend when they're on the boat at the end, when his friend seems to be losing his nerve. Because... It's a privilege to say this, but I cannot get to that headspace no matter how many times I try and kind of thought experiment it. There's a repetition in him losing hope, though, that I think pencils out to a place that that I think you can get there at. The loss of the job, the, the beating that he takes in line, the rock bottom that he arrives at only after hitting every branch. Right. 
the need for a friendly face that feels like oxygen. Like these are the types of people that that these people prey on, you know? Well, except and this is I think a this is a fault clearly of Stephen Gagan. Um <laughs> A guy who is just a legendarily cool hang, a super, like, he will tell you stories about, like, you know, some back alley bar in Tehran that he's been to where he did, Yeah, he actually did the liquid MDMA that they talk about in this movie. Oh, hell yeah. In order to make a a cool, a sympathetic storyline of a Wahhabist training camp, I guess, we were given our character who's handsome and sensitive clearly and full of almost Western doubt. We've seen this role in a few different films that we've watched, but what we don't often see is this character portrayed by an incredibly zealous indoctrinated young person who is really, really, really in it and believes every word and has like all the passion in the world. And I wonder if that isn't a Western filmmaking conceit hmm. because it would be uncomfortable. I think if, if this storyline in this movie featured a young man who was like fully indoctrinated, drank the Kool-Aid fire in his eyes. It's what makes his death tragic, right? There is no tragedy in his death. If he is a fully throated, totally indoctrinated Wahhabi horse right. of, this, of this school, right? <laughs> <laughs> because if he is that person, then the... Tr- you guys fucking knew I had that, that chamber. That was good. He probably would never have been born if his mother had worked anywhere but Wahhabi Lobby, where they deny first control to their employees we need a third sorry i don't play this game keep the hacky sack no i'm afraid the person you're looking for is ken jennings and he's not on this podcast you guys can have your let's damn it why didn't we get ken jennings for our podcast you can have your pun fun but not with me (laughs) but no you're right if 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 he was an if he was a full jihadi then the tragedy of that last scene would have been the destruction of the natural gas ship, right? That would have been yeah, right. the thing that we mourn. we can't have that. So instead we mourn. I don't know how much we're mourning those boys and how much we're just mourning the suggestion that what that did was spark. Just imagining like the consequences of it. That's, that's the, yeah. that's the nine 11 of this movie and all the new Emir and uh, all the characters that we've grown to know and love are all now activated by that event. And in the end, it makes the world a worse place. I always wonder about it because there are aspects of religious practice that I really appreciate, but like faith in a, in a supernatural has been a very elusive idea to me to the extent that like, I wonder if it's even a real thing that people are experiencing because it feels so like I can't even simulate it, you know, and, you know, there are so many people that espouse a devotion to their faith and occasionally it comes across as almost performative, like they are scared about the like what it will mean about who they are if they don't espouse this this devotion to their faith and that sort of feels like maybe 
what is being implied in Wasim's story. Well, his teacher tells him that fairly directly, right? Or is it his friend who says, like, it's okay to doubt your faith. It actually makes it stronger that you're scrutinizing it. Right. That's just some religious hokum. That's just a guy trying to get a guy to blow himself up, right? Ben, have you have you read The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James? I have not. So, The Varieties of Religious Experience, it's a it's a Victorian book or a, a Findesiacal book. So the language is a little bit uh 19th century. Which siècle? Oh, the last one, not or the one before, oh, okay. not the most recent one. <laughs> Uh, but um, <laughs> but I, I I think you would like the language. It's very you know it's it's very elevated. But it's just a book about. I like uh, to flatter myself. Yeah yeah sure. It, yeah, I mean you know you, you can skim over the over the three syllable ones. But but William James basically just investigates the varieties of religious experience, and it's fascinating. And I think it it's it's helpful to. To, to reconcile what you're talking about the the fact that like the people profess to have had these deeply personal experiences of religion but personally you find that such so elusive that you just can't you, you don't even have an entry point to it what what the conclusion of the book is is basically like authentic religious experience when it when it really happens to people generally makes them in, makes them seem insane insane and uh and they're almost universally rejected by their contemporaries and sent into exile and it's only later that those are interpreted as um like the wellsprings of true inspiration or you know those are the people that become prophets but they only become prophets after they're after they're buried alive in a casket of worms john i'm on amazon right now and the varieties of religious experience uh Coming in with a four out of five star <laughs> review based on 301 customer ratings. One of the lowest reviews, one star by Turkfan69, who says simply, this book is bullshit. <laughs> so there you go. There's like the, there is like an American analog to a religious zealot, which is, like, I mean, I think that you find occasionally in a military person, right? Like somebody that is extremely devoted to a, like, fundamentalist reading of the Christian Bible and sees their role in the American military as an, as a, you know, a practice of that devotion in some ways. And, you know, like, that's something that, like somebody like me is always horrified to learn like, oh, they, you know, there's an extremely high percentage of, uh, you know, evangelical Christians at the Air Force Academy. And it's like creeping its way into the curriculum. <laughs> it's like an alarming thing to learn. And yet, like, that kind of character is never what we've gotten as the character who's become interested in the idea of participating in a jihad on the on the Muslim side. I think it's a lot easier. I mean, if you think about the U S air force Academy, what has happened there is that Christians, evangelicals who are sending their sons into the military know that the air force is the most Christianist. And so it becomes a, you know, a self reinforcing loop where 
more and more young officers go to the Air Force Academy, but they're coming in already like ready to receive the good news. And our character in this movie, like his dad just likes sports and beer. (laughs) And he does not have a, he doesn't have like a lightning bolt moment. Nothing. I mean, what the worst thing that happens to him is he loses his job. Um, And so he gets into it because it's like a fraternity. I think a certain number of people that end up in religion go there because that's where their friends are and it's where the cool kids are, or at least it's where the expectations are. But those people don't typically drive a fishing boat with a missile launcher on it into a natural gas ship. I felt like I felt the the cold, gross hand of Stephen Gagan. He basically... He pulled it off of his. He pulled it out now of his. Now you've can changed of, the pronunciation <laughs> intentionally. <laughs> he pulled it out of his can of Doctor Zog sex wax. I'm gonna sit here and let you besmirch the pronunciation of my best friend Stephen Gagan's name. One of the there. best in the biz. Three films. Three films he's done. One of them was Doolittle. I rest my case. I searched John Roderick, John Morgan Roderick on IMDb. Nothing came up. can't always (laughs) because my haters are on there is that right wait a minute I think I'm on IMDB aren't I don't I have some credit well that wouldn't work for my takedown John so I'm not even going to (laughs) look I didn't lie just left out a few details well uh, it is review time on friendly fire it's time to review a film that took me down personally (laughs) uh down to the bottom of my uh emotional well i you guys know this i try to avoid the obvious in the construction of my custom rating systems i like to to avoid something that fits too neatly into my truly innovative one to five things rating paradigm but you guys know the scene there's one scene that is perfect for the construction of such a system. Clooney's taped to a chair. His hands are on that piece of wood. You can count his fingers. There's five fingers there. And a nail for every finger. What follows in this scene is so expertly done that it demands to be the rating system for this movie. It's one of the few examples in this film where we know what's going to happen as soon as we get the establishing shot. And we also know how it's going to feel, but this scene is as shocking and as unsettling as any other in the film in spite of our knowledge of that. And I think that is emblematic of the great Stephen Gagan's ability as a filmmaker in that he can both tell a riveting story that we've heard before within a larger story that we haven't. So we're going to rate Syriana today on a scale of one to five fingernails. I had only seen this movie once before uh, watching it again for the purposes of our show. And the rep then is the same as it is now. It's too complex for most people to comprehend on a narrative level. And I'm not too proud to say that I count myself in that camp. Uh, This movie is hard to disentangle all the storylines uh, but fortunately, if if you can't get with it in that way, 
it is loaded up with tension and emotional heft that makes it really satisfying without needing to have it all figured out by the end. And like sometimes as a as a movie lover lover that I am, like I like coming to the end of a film feeling the exhilaration of having figured it out. Sometimes I like that when the the lights come up, I feel you know, just tired from an emotional experience. At the end of Syriana, I felt bad about the world because, like, the the struggles that we experience for Earth's resources are, like, are always running in the background. They're running in the background of this film and they're running in the backgrounds of our lives. And the film is making the case that these connections between these problems are are difficult to decipher. And with the power of the stakeholders involved are impossible to solve. And like the big takeaway, the thing that makes me feel the worst at the end is the thing about when it was made. And, and that it was made in 05 and could have been made in 2015, not a lot has changed. And very few people still control a whole lot. And I think you see a lot of this visually in an interesting way. You get a small amount of people christening the giant oil refinery. You get people in giant hotels with massive city skylines behind them. You get Matt Damon diving into a giant pool like the the idea that very few people are the concentration of so much power is a thing that you experience in a lot of ways here. I think between traffic and Syriana, it felt like Stephen Gagan was on his way to becoming a sort of Christopher Nolan figure. And I don't know what happened to him that that wasn't the case. Uh, he's an obvious talent. He's obviously a person I'd like to hang out with anytime just like one of the real cools of the industry. He's an obvious talent, and I hope he has a few more films left in him. He's 55. But like a young 55, a vivacious 55. Right, a 55 that could stay up late and like have one of those conversations that you feel like will never end. This film haunts me in the best way, and and it's the pain that I respond to the most. I think it's a five fingernail movie. I love this movie and I hate how it makes me feel, how hopeless it makes me feel anyway. I feel very similarly to you, Adam, about that. I think the um, the one thing that I feel like it does do that I'm glad it does do is give kind of a conceptual framework for understanding these power structures that we live with. And I feel like having a sense of how this shit works is crucial to you know casting votes that make it harder for shit like this to work it's a pretty urgent call for us to examine the way our society and our country's foreign policy and our use of energy are set up and the fact that it's no less urgent now is a little bit discouraging but i think um, I'd rather we had this movie and had it calling for what it's calling for than not. And um, I was actually kind of gratified because I have seen this movie a bunch of times now, but I feel like I've never, I've never felt like I could 
keep track of all the narrative threads until this watch through. I felt like I got it this time for the first time in a in a way that was was fun, and I'm I'm. Uh, not bragging. I, it, it did take me a lot of watch throughs, but I think that there's also like some some stuff in the movie that sort of is there intentionally to throw you off. And I think that's such an interesting choice as a filmmaker to make it feel bigger and more confusing because that's like how a lot of this stuff really works. It's sort of like confusing by design. It's it's kind of reminds me of like the subprime mortgage crisis. Like the second you start hearing terms like collateralized debt obligations, your eyes glaze over and you just fucking can't pay attention anymore. And every time Matt Damon is talking to Amanda Peet about what his job is like, she's like, shut the fuck up. Nobody wants to listen to that shit. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's a, a great movie by a, a great man, really. <laughs> A man in whose presence I could only dream of spending any time. So uh, I will also give it five fingernails. I think we've both caused John to give this zero fingernails. (laughs) I'm going to give it five fingers. Don't spite review this movie, John, please. (laughs) No, I, I liked this movie and I liked it when it came out. I think that the, the overcomplicatedness of it is is slightly uh, emphasized and i think the movie's kind of hindered by just a little bit of the stylishness of the way we get into and out of scenes you know that there's a kind of there's a very 2005ness a kind of like it's not it's not all the way to jason bourne level of of stylishness and there and partly it's because there there's not that much hand-to-hand combat in this but the way that the you know the way that a lot of information is happening in the in the background you know a tv on in the background is actually laying out some important stuff but your attention is is completely focused elsewhere because you're watching a son and his alcoholic father have a like war of silence with each other like you're not listening to the tv i think that stuff is pretty cool because it rewards multiple watches although the first time through this movie you can be forgiven for saying like what was happening who were all those people and why was what are we where are we now like what Maybe Steven Gaggins just watching like video games or something, or maybe he's like really into MTV at the time. And he's like, Oh cool. I saw that in a, in a, like, uh, you know, I saw like Spinderella, uh, do it at some point, And now I want to put it in my movie, but I think the casting was great. And, and I think the movie is really great. I feel like if I were making it, I would have done a much better job. God, if someone threw you an unlimited research budget, you'd be gone. That'd be the last anyone heard from you. It's not true. I would bring back everything I learned and I would make the greatest movie of all time. As it is, we have to basically deal with this movie made by made by some guy. And it's fine. It's good. Uh and I'm going to come in at at um I'm going to give it four and a four and a half bloody fingernails. Ben, who's your guy? Uh, my guy is Wasim's dad, 
Asim's dad is a little checked out. He's a bit of a schlemiel, but uh, he ain't he ain't doing a, nobody no harm. <laughs> He's like one of the few people in this movie that is generally speaking like a, a benign <laughs> character. <laughs> he seems like the rare good person in this movie. So. He's a chill dude. He wants to remember those snow-covered mountains. Uh, John, who's your guy? My guy is uh, the great William Hurt. If your movie is so stacked with Academy Award winners and people putting in the performance of their lives, that you can have William Hurt, Academy Award winner William Hurt, in a walk-on role where he basically, like like saunters in and saunters out your movie is pretty killer and you know it's a i think a credit to a lot of the people that worked on this movie casting and and uh you know your director of photography but william hurt is playing the role that i feel like born to play which is former cia agent who now works in the private sector but still has more info than current CIA agents and current CIA agents who are on the, on the lamb meet him in parking lots and ask him cryptic questions. And he works for the Rand corporation or he works for the Bilderberg group. I don't know who he works for, but whoever he works for, he's like a member of the intelligence community but he's also like making money and he's outside the game a little bit. He's out. He, he's not, he doesn't have to worry about some bureaucrat in Washington. And, uh, you know, I just love William Hurt and I love that idea. And I thought that he did. Sometimes you can get too much William Hurt. And I felt like this movie had just the right amount. I could have used a little less William Hurt in one scene can't tell you how disappointed I'd be if I had bought tickets to a movie. <laughs> People behind me were talking throughout, and I turn around to, to hush them up. It's goddamn William Hurt. Right. Talk, talking to George Clooney. To George Clooney. <laughs> You'd be like, oh, fuck. Really lose a bunch of points in my book, William Hurt. Why don't you keep it down back there? <laughs> Trying to watch the film. Uh, my guy is a lady guy. Not a lot of scenes played for comedy, and I don't think this scene is 100% comedy, but uh, when George Clooney is working at his desk doing desk research, he does some search that he probably wished that he had done on incognito mode because uh, the names that he's entering with the repetition that he's entering them set off the alarm not just on his computer, but the computers of everyone in, on his floor. When he walks out into the hallway, and I replayed this scene several times. I wanted to be sure about this because I'm not a lip reader. He walks, he walks to the window and he sees this row of ladies out there doing admin work or whatever. When Bob triggers the computer alarm, one of the ladies wheels around and mouths, what the fuck were you doing? <laughs> <laughs> you don't hear it, but you see it. And I love that react. <laughs> that lady's my guy. Man. Fun guys. Yeah. Good pork chop, guys. I guess this is this our first bonus episode since the Max Fun Drive? I think so. Thanks to everyone who uh, supported and welcome to the feed. Thanks for uh thanks for keeping us in biz. Couldn't do it without you. 
if you're if you're new to this, we're not going to tell you what next month's movie is for the pork chop feed because we don't do that. We only have one 120-sided die, and its full-time job is predicting main feed films. Right. But uh, but uh, it's always a, a fun surprise, and uh, check back in in about a month for the next one. So uh, we're going to leave it with Rob's from here, but for John Roderick and Ann Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison, the Victor, those boiler alerts. Pork Chop Episodes, brought to you by Friendly Fire, is a Maximum Fun podcast. It's hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick, and it's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music, and our podcast art is by Nick Dittmer. If you'd like to hear more Pork Chop Episodes, just take a look back at all of that Maximum Fun bonus content. We have a whole bunch of episodes ready for you if you're new to the feed. Remember that you can follow Friendly Fire on Twitter and Instagram under the handles Friendly Fire RSS. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next month with another Pork Chop episode. Fund.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.